turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you would, with me. I think I've told this story before, but one of my, my first boss when I moved here um, was a part of a church. Uh, I think it was a Lutheran church of some kind. And um, it was a very old church. And he was the treasurer, so he was the one that they came to to pay the bills and um, stuff like that. And he was telling me this story one time because he had had a meeting, an elder meeting at the church. I think it was an elder slash deacon meeting. And uh, he came back and he was frustrated and upset. And so he knew that I was a pastor. And partly when I got hired, we talked about that. And one of the reasons he hired me was because of the background that I had and some other things. And he knew... Um, that I would need time from work to do some church stuff. So I worked anywhere between 30 and 40 hours. We had a great relationship in that respect, and so we talked religious things all the time. I don't know that he was saved at the time. He got saved a little bit later. But um, So anyway, we would talk religious things, and he came in one, one Monday, and he was sharing on this frustrating Sunday night elder-slash-deacon meeting that they had. And the crux of it was somebody had died 20 years earlier and had left a fairly sizable chunk of money. I think it was ten dollars or $20,000. But they had designated it to replace all the carpeting in the church because the carpeting was really old and really tattered shape and not looking very good. And so this was 20 years earlier, and they still had not changed the carpeting. They still had not paid to redo that. And the reason was they had some what we call pillars in the church, those with very loud voices, they're very well respected within the church, but they have a loud bark, they call it, I guess. Um, and they couldn't, get a, they couldn't settle on what color to make the carpeting. And so for 20 years, they didn't replace the carpeting. And the way my boss described it was, this was worn down to in some places where you could look through and see the padding, and it was tattered, he said, the church was beautiful, but you walk in and what you saw was this tattered, worn, destroyed carpet. But because they couldn't agree on a color, nobody was going to bend and we just don't replace the carpeting. And he said, so they would get into these meetings to talk about it and people would bicker and fight and accuse one another about being arrogant or proud and why don't you... And it went on for 20 years. He ultimately finally left the church. He found a, a, another church. And like I said, he ultimately got, got saved and, and uh, all turned out much better. But I would imagine that that was probably about 20 years ago that I had this conversation with them. I haven't been in touch with them now for a few years. But I would imagine they probably still haven't replaced the carpet. That's not a good thing. It isn't about the carpet, is it? You would expect more of believers. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Just replace the carpet. Give up some pride or some arrogance and, and that. Churches are not perfect because they're made up of imperfect people. Right? Churches are not perfect because they're made up of imperfect people. But out of all people, we ought to be able to get along. We shouldn't see that in churches, should we? It's sort of like family relationships. You know, I share this with the kids all the time, that, you know, you're in a, in a family and there's more opportunity for tension because you're close and you let your guard down and you might say things to a brother or sister that you might not say to a friend because, eh, it's a brother and sister, you don't care as much. But really, the family ought to be the closest of all units. We should be able to get along. And it's the same thing with the church. You would think that issues like the carpeting wouldn't be that big of a deal. 
that we, of all people, ought to be able to get along. We're supposed to bear a resemblance to Jesus Christ. We're to be gracious and respectful and kind and gentle. So you wouldn't expect that in churches, but we do see that, and it's because we're not perfect people. So even though we share a common faith in Jesus Christ that should force us to get along, it doesn't always work out that way. But you know, we are called to unity. I want want to have you look up a couple of passages here. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4 with me. We're going to just start by looking at a couple of real quick passages before we get into 1 Timothy chapter 2. But Ephesians chapter 4... If you look at the first three verses, Paul says this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you were called. In other words, act like a Christian. Act like followers of Jesus. (coughs) With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Being diligent to preserve what? The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Sounds like my boss's church could have taken that to heart. There's a call to unity there. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Would you turn there with me? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 10, it's very simple. Now I exhort you. Paul begins his letter this way. The problem was in the Corinthian church, they weren't getting along. There were lawsuits. They were bickering over about this food and that food. And there were issues with divorce and and, um, immorality within the church. There was all kinds of stuff going on. And so Paul begins his letter with an exhortation. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. So Paul calls on the Corinthian church to be unified, to be of the same mind with one another. Turn to 2 Corinthians. He had to do it again with these same people. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Jump down to verse 11. He ends his communication with the Corinthians by saying, Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. But then he says this, Be like-minded. Live in peace. He's talking about with one another there. And the God of love and peace will be with you. And so we have this call, this challenge from the scriptures that we are to be unified, like-minded, bearing with one another, being gracious and kind to one another, preserving the unity that is supposed to be natural from our association with the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't always happen because we don't always act as we should. Churches don't always function as they should. Sometimes we're like family where we bicker and we fight because that's what families kind of do, right? But it's not supposed to be that way. In our passage today, 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verses 8, going through 15, Paul addresses this issue of disruptions and dysfunction in the local church. Remember, Paul had two primary reasons for writing his letter to Timothy. One is to confront the false teaching that was taking place. But the second was he wanted to lay down some ground rules on this is how the church is supposed to function. This is what it's supposed to be like. And he wanted to address their behavior. And he does that through laying some groundwork for elders and deacons and some other things. Last week he talked about the need for prayer, that we're supposed to pray as a church family. Well, today in the passage, he specifically addresses very identifiable concerns that he had going on in that church that were causing 
issues. And so he comes out today full on and confronts at least these three issues that he saw. The first one is that the men apparently were a little bit angry and were disputing with one another. They weren't getting along. The second was some of the women were not behaving appropriately in the church, especially when it came to their dress and how they conducted themselves. The third issue, third problem Paul saw, was some of the behavior of the women in, in terms of teaching and, and leadership within the church, violating some, some conduct and some rules related specifically to teaching and authority within the church. And so Paul saw these as disruptive, and so he wanted to address them. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at this. Starting in verse 8 of chapter 2, Paul says this. And you may notice in your Bibles that the paragraph break comes after this. And the debate is, does verse 8 go with what's before it, or does verse 8 go with what's behind or what's after it? Well, it's a transitionary verse, if you will. Paul had just addressed the church by saying, you all need to be praying. But then he narrows in specifically on the men and he says in verse 8, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. This is challenging because we don't really know what prompted it. Why does Paul address the men very specifically here, especially in regard to prayer? Well, I would argue that it probably has something to do with the end of that verse. Without wrath and dissension. Apparently, there was anger, intense anger and dissension. That word wrath means just that. It's a form of intense anger or dissension. It isn't just mad. It is really, really angry with somebody. You can be mad at somebody, but you can be wrathful. Wrath usually involves some type of action. Anger doesn't necessarily involve anger, action. It can, but usually wrath is an outpouring of your anger. That's why when you hear about God's wrath, it's usually an act. He's not just mad. He's now acting in that anger. And so, there was apparently a problem with wrath among some of these men. We get sort of a glimpse of that in Ephesians chapter 4, if you want to jump back there real quick with me. I suspect that because Paul spent three years at Ephesus, he got a pretty good feel for the people there. You know, you learn an awful lot about the people that you shepherd as a pastor, and Paul certainly would have learned an awful lot about the Ephesians. And so when we jump down to verse 4, we're going to come to this at the very end, I mean chapter 4, we're going to come back to this at the very end, but just briefly, let's look at chapter 4 of Ephesians, jumping down into verse 25. Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin, meaning don't sin in your anger, Do not let the sun go down in your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Now I want you to jump down to verse 11. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, same language we see in our passage in Timothy, and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That may give us a glimpse as to what was happening and why Paul had to address the men. It appears that, in some respects, the men were the ones that are struggling with this particular issue. And likely might have been infecting the church. You know, it's interesting. You watch how a father manages his household, and oftentimes the family takes on the personality of the father, especially if he's an angry individual. And so that may have been the case at Ephesus. So what we just read 
may very well have been what was started by the men, the wrath and the dissension. Um, now, Paul doesn't really identify the cause or the, you know, what it was that was causing them to be angry with one another. Um, the best we can really do is sort of speculate. I'm not going to do that. Because I don't really think what they were bickering over or what the cause of it was, I don't think that's all that important. The fact is, it still has to be addressed or dealt with. Right? And so we just know that they were fighting. They weren't behaving appropriately. So Paul addresses that. If you go back to verse 1 here, I mean, sorry, verse... Um, yeah, verse 1. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray. You know, I find that interesting. The word therefore ties it to what's before. He had just called on the church to pray for not just authorities, but those outside the church in general. Focus on them and pray for them. And he prayed, he told us to pray for three very specific things. You can go back to the message last week to see those. But he now says, he sort of transitions from, hey, I've told the church to pray, but now specifically, you men need to lead by praying. That's how he confronts their dissensions and their wrath. Isn't that interesting? Why doesn't Paul say, well, now let's deal with your anger and wrath. Let's get to the heart of the matter, the soul. He doesn't. He says, pray. Just pray. And again, he does that by connecting it with that word, therefore. Now, the context would seem to suggest here that what Paul was talking about is a reference to public prayer. Remember, he's talking about the local church here, and he tells Timothy a little bit later, I want you to know how to conduct yourselves within the household of God. And so in many respects, what Paul is talking about here is what happens when they come together and they gather. We would call that our church service. They would meet in homes that they gathered together on sometimes a daily basis, sometimes a weekly basis. And Paul primarily has that in mind. And so I believe what he's doing is he's calling the men here to public prayer within their gatherings whenever they meet. That men are supposed to take the lead in that and they are supposed to pray. Part of that is because he says, I want men to pray in every place. Now we know those, they met in house churches. So typically in a place like Ephesus, there wasn't just one church. There'd be multiple house churches. And so Paul is saying, in each one of these places, each one of these house churches, I want you men to pray. To do it publicly. We see that phrase in every every place used throughout the scriptures, again, oftentimes to refer to individual churches. So that's what I believe Paul is doing here. But you know what? It isn't enough that they were simply to pray. Notice that Paul says they were to do it with lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. A common posture in the ancient Near East when praying was just that. To lift your hands up in the air. We find that throughout the Psalms. If you remember when we studied 1 Kings and Solomon, when Solomon did a dedication of the temple and he began his prayer in front of all of Israel, it says that he lifted his hands up as he began to pray. That was a very common thing in the ancient Near East. We do find it sometimes here at our church. Occasionally here we'll see somebody may raise their hands. That's a good thing. It's not commanded in Scripture that we pray that way, but it's something that they did. It's something that some of us do. But the emphasis isn't on the lifting up of hands. The emphasis is on doing it without, without wrath and dissension. And so it's not posture here that's important. It's what's going on in the heart and your behavior. And he's told them that they should pray without wrath and dissension. Now what's important about this is in the Old Testament, this idea of holy hands was important. 
Before the priests were able to go in and perform their duties, they had to wash their hands and feet because they represented sin. If you were sinning, your hands were considered dirty. Your feet were considered dirty. I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 24. Psalm chapter 24. Look at verse 4. Even though I walk... Whoops, wait a minute. That was Psalm 24. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord. Notice it says there that he who has clean hands. Now, does that mean literally somebody that has clean hands? No, it's symbolism for the one who has dealt with sin. His hands are free of that. Okay? Turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, down in verse 15. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. There he's using hands again as a euphemism for sin. Same thing with the idea of cleansing there. When he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, he's not saying, take a bath and then I'll deal with you. He's saying, get rid of the sin. Repent. And so Paul is using that same imagery here with these men when he says to pray by lifting up their hands and to do it without wrath and dissension. What he's talking about there is these men are supposed to put that behavior aside. They're to begin praying, but to do it with clean hands, which means putting aside the wrath and dissension. They should not approach God before doing that. So this is, in many respects, a call by Paul for them to repent of this behavior, this wrath and this dissensions, to wash themselves, if you will, of that, and then to begin to pray. makes you wonder why Paul called on them to pray instead of just calling them out on their behavior. Stop your wrath. Stop your dissension. I'm going to speculate a little bit here. I think it's because praying would focus their hearts and mind on God's purpose and plan. Remember, what he had just told them was, pray for them. Pray for the world. God wants all men to be saved. It's amazing when you begin to think about the lost nature of the world, you begin to pray for them, or as you begin to pray for others, how that can impact your own heart and turn it back towards the Lord. The Lord, Especially if they were bickering and fighting, in this case, over carpeting. That becomes a non-issue, does it not? There's a certain amount of rebuke. When you begin to pray and you focus your thoughts on God and other people, that forces you to look at your own behavior and say, wow, I can't believe that's an issue for me. When James wrote his letter, many of his readers, they were suffering. There was bickering and infighting there as well. It appears that in some respects, the rich were oppressing the poor. And so James writes this in chapter 5, verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins one to another, and then look at this, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Isn't it interesting? James does the same thing Paul does. Now James calls them out for their behavior, tells the rich to weep and to gnash their teeth, but he also says, 
You ought to pray for one another. You ought to confess your sins so that you can be healed. So the healing that was supposed to take place here at Ephesus, dealing with the wrath and the dissension, begins with prayer. You know, it's interesting. When I was in college, one of my, the very first guy I ever met at college was another guy named David Baton. Or I'm David Baton. It was called David Spot. I got to college a little early because um, former students or current students um, started a little bit earlier than new students did. And so my sister and I went to the same college. We bought a car to share together. So I went with my sister um, for the first day of college, and she had to start earlier than me. So I had about a week before classes started. So I was in this dormitory all by myself. There's nobody else there. But I think on my second or third day, another guy showed up. And I happened to be just in my room doing whatever. I wasn't saved at the time. And this guy kind of walked by and introduced himself. In fact, he, you guys remember the, the um, principal from Ferris Bueller? David Spot was like a spitting image of that guy. You see him, you know, that, that's David right there. But um, he kind of knocked on the door and says, hey, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm just sitting here and goes, Mine, what are you, you know, I, I'm killing time here myself. I'm looking for somebody to hang out with. And I'm like, I don't know who you are, you know. But he kind of just went down to his room and he got something. He came back and he sat in my room and we just read. Didn't talk, just read. But he ended up becoming one of my closest friends. And we both got saved about the same time. And so the first two years, we hung out. We did everything together. Um, We'd go to classes together because he was also in computer science. I worked with him because we were both consultants for the school. Um, We'd play ping pong. We went bowling together. We were on a bowling league. I mean, just everything. We ate together, and we were inseparable. Well, then we decided to move off campus, and we decided it would be a good idea to room together. Bad idea. And we began to have tension, and things weren't going well. You know, he loved to have birds, and so he had parakeets, and he would not put them in a cage, and they would poop all over the house, and I had a problem with that, you know, and um, all kinds of stuff. You know, he wouldn't clean up after himself, and I'm not saying I wasn't at fault, but I'm just not going to mention my sins here. But, <laughs> but it was a problem, and we were not getting along. And so I went to the guy that led me to Christ, who happened to be my mentor at the time, and I would vent to him. And so finally he said, well... Are you praying for him? And I said, of course I pray about it. And he goes, I didn't ask you that. I said, are you praying for him? And I went, uh, no. Why would I do that? I don't like him. I'm angry. I don't like what he's doing. He said, look, just trust me on this. Pray for him. You know what that did? It helped change the perspective that I had. Because now I'm praying for him. And it really did a lot to fix that relationship. David didn't do anything that I'm aware of. He didn't change behavior. But I found that as I would pray for him, my heart changed and that relationship got much better. I wasn't quite as bitter or angry. I didn't have quite as much wrath or dissension. And I believe that's what Paul has in mind here. So what's our takeaway? While Paul's focus is on the men here, I think it's a rule that applies to all of us. You know? Many of the problems, disruptions that we face, whether it's in our families or in the church, can be addressed, not just by changing the behavior, which we should do, but by praying, especially praying for one another. Can you imagine at that church of my boss, if they would have one day just said, you know what, we haven't purchased this carpeting in 20 years, we're doing a disservice to the person that left us the money for it. How disgusting is that? Why don't we pray for one another instead? I would imagine that if they started doing that, They'd probably be on their second set of carpeting now. But instead, it still sits there. And so Paul addresses one of the concerns, the wrath and the dissension, the problems that are in the church, the disruption that was being caused because of their anger and dislike of one another. Paul says, pray 
But he does tell them to do it with holy hands, without the wrath and dissension, which is a call to repentance on that behavior as well. So it's not pray and don't change your behavior. It's no, pray, but do it without the wrath and dissension. So I think it's a good challenge for us. And that's a rule I think will apply for almost anything. It'll work here in the church. I don't know that we have a whole lot of issues here. But God forbid we ever do. We've got to be on our knees praying. But it'll work within our families. It'll work with husband-wife relationships. It'll work with work relationships, neighbor relationships. Now, that doesn't mean it'll always be easy. But I believe that praying will help with whatever frustrations are going on in the heart and to help to heal some of those divides. Now, the second disruption that Paul was concerned about had to do with immodest dress and behavior of some of the women. Look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2. He says, Likewise, I want the women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, or yeah, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So now, Paul has a problem with women. That's what you hear people say, right? It's not what they think. Paul didn't have a problem with women. But he did have a problem with the behavior of some of the women at Ephesus. I'm going to propose a slight change, if you will, to how I just read that. The New American Standard says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. I think it's better understood as adorn themselves with proper demeanor or behavior. And the reason for that is this. Adorn can mean to dress oneself. Um, But its meaning is much, much wider than that. This word's only used one time here, if I remember correctly. Um, Actually, wait a minute, let me back up where clothing there is. But this word for adorn here is actually used in the um, Gospels to refer to like adorning um, grave sites and buildings like temples. And so it's a word to pretty something up. And so Paul does say that women are to adorn themselves, pretty themselves up. But this word for clothing here is only used one time in the entire New Testament. It's not used anywhere else. And so it's a hard word to define. Usually you look in the scriptures, you look at how a word is used, and that helps then define what that word means. Well, when a word is only used one time, sometimes it's hard to know exactly what that means. And that word for clothing there can mean clothing, but it can also mean behavior or demeanor. And in fact, when we look outside the scriptures at how that word is used, more often than not, it refers to demeanor or behavior, not clothing. And in fact, most lexicons and and commentaries, when you look this word up, tells you that it's more about demeanor than it is simply clothes. So when we look at this, and Paul is saying that women are to adorn themselves with proper clothing, I think a much better translation of that is to adorn themselves with proper behavior, demeanor. So that's the way I'm going to treat it here. Paul writes that their demeanor should be, notice he says they're proper, says that it should be modest with self-restraint, So let's look at some of these things that he lays out. What does it mean to be modest and self-restrained? Modesty has a variety of meanings. The root of modesty is a sense of shame, meaning that one knows how to conduct him or or herself without being shamed or shameful. 
Modesty is reflected in how one thinks about himself or herself, reflects on how one acts or speaks, it's how one dresses. When we think of modesty, oftentimes we think it only applies to dress. That's immodest, but it actually has more to do with behavior. It's how you conduct yourselves. If you behave in an immodest way, you're behaving in a way that should bring shame upon you. Unfortunately, we live in a culture and a society where nobody feels shame anymore. We're seeing that more and more with the younger generations where you're like, man, I get that that might be in your heart, but wow, when I was your age, I would have been too embarrassed to behave that way. I've got some people that I work with that on occasion I go, wow, I'd be too ashamed to behave in that way, (laughs) even as an unsaved person. I had a conversation on this last week with somebody um, She's considered fairly high maintenance. She brings in about half our commercial business in Kansas. Great job. Knows what she's doing. But she can be a challenge sometimes because she's never wrong. And she had done something and um, it was causing an issue for her. And so when her coworker called me, because she always has her coworkers call us because she can't call us, high maintenance. Um, so I talked to the coworker, and she's like, well, I'll let you explain that to her because you know how she's going to respond. It won't be her fault, and you won't be able to correct it. And I'm like, I was hoping you'd talk to her. So I did. I called her, and certainly, no, 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 it's not me. I didn't do that. It's like, no, but it was. I can prove it to you. No, 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 no. Well, then she had to text everyone and tell everyone, well, Michael fixed my problem. But it wasn't me. I didn't cause it. She had to tell everyone. I look at that behavior sometimes and go, wow, I'd be so embarrassed. Treating people like that. Talking like that. I would just, even as an unsafe, I'd be embarrassed by that. I think people would look at me like, wow, she's mean or he's not nasty. Well, modesty. It goes beyond just how you dress. It's how you behave and it's, when you behave in a way that brings shame or should cause shame. He also uses the word here, self-restraint. It refers to having a good sense or sound judgment rather than being driven by passion or impulse. You know, when I help people out at work, um, you know, it's interesting because it's a good thing that I'm a Christian because when I choose to help somebody, I do it because I'm obligated to help them. I don't always do it because they deserve to be helped. Because there are some people who do not deserve to be helped. If they treat me inappropriately, (coughs) as I just mentioned, why should I help them out? Right? They don't deserve it. But see, I'm not driven by passion or impulse in that respect. I'm driven by sound judgment. I know I should help them out. My job's dependent on it. I know that if I help them out, they get their job done, which ultimately increases revenue for the company, and my stock goes up. Okay, good judgment, sound judgment, self-restraint. So I have to bite my tongue sometimes and just say, I get that, and I did this week. I'm like, you know what, I I, I get it. I'm just telling you how it is. But I get that. You know, I'm not going to argue with her. Self-restraint. And so the first thing we're told here about women, this, this first standard for them to adorn themselves properly is that they do it with modesty and self-restraint. Which means that there was probably a problem. They weren't being modest. They weren't having self-restraint. And that's going to come up a little bit later here. So that's the first standard is that women within the church should adorn themselves with modesty and self-restraint. doesn't mean it doesn't apply to men. It's just that there was a problem here with the women. Second, the second standard is that they are not to adorn themselves. He says... 
with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. It's interesting. Peter says something similar to the women when he's talking in 1 Peter chapter 3. Turn there with me if you would. Look at the parallels between what Peter says to women to what Paul says. Romans, or I'm sorry, I'm really having trouble with my citations. 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter says, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For it is in this way of for, in former times the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You notice the parallels there? He's telling him to basically focus on the inward person, not the external, not to focus on the braided hair and the, the gold and the jewelry and the you know, fancy dresses. Something Paul repeats here. Now, some people take this passage here in Paul's words as a prohibition against wearing jewelry, wearing makeup, making yourself look pretty, braiding the hair. I've known people like this. They require that their wives not wear makeup, not make themselves look attractive or pretty. I don't believe that's what Paul has in mind here at all. Hairstyles among the Greek and Roman women were pretty simple usually. They would part their hair down the middle. They would usually tie it back or put a, some kind of a covering on their head. That was pretty normal and pretty standard among the populace. However, royal women during Paul's day, man, they did themselves up. This is actually kind of interesting. The royal women came up with these very elaborate and expensive hairstyles. They included these elaborate curls with these fancy braids, these really high wigs. They would use these decorative pins in their hair. They would put ornaments, almost like you know, putting on a tree, Christmas tree, these ornaments that would go into their, their head and these elaborate scarves. One ancient scholar described these hairstyles this way. They were tall edifices that rise up upon their heads in rows of tears and stories. They were these big hairdos that were fancy and elaborate. It was a Christmas tree on the head. What's interesting about that is women in the Greek and Hebrew culture oftentimes tried to emulate royalty. And some of those styles would sort of trickle down to others, generally the more wealthy because it was expensive. That's what Paul probably has in mind here. The way that he describes it is the same language used to describe those hairstyles. And so it appears that what was happening in the church is that some of the women, maybe some of the more wealthy women, we're not sure, were trying to emulate those things. And so they would show up at their gatherings with these massive weird hairdos all decked out and towering and all... And Paul had a problem with that. You know, it would be much like in our society trying to copy the Kardashians. You know, church is not a place to come and show off. I, I get you show up at a ball and you want to deck yourself out. A church gathering is not for that purpose. It's not to show off. It's not to attract attention. And apparently, some of the women in the church were doing that. 
They were paying more attention to these outward things and this extravagant setup of their hair and maybe even, as Peter says, maybe even the dresses. Now, the other thing about this is that type of stuff was often associated with immorality as well because that was rampant among royal women as well. And so the two were very related. Now, think about that. If somebody were to come in here today, and I'll use a very neutral phrase, dressed as a woman of the night, even if she wasn't a woman of the night, what might you think if she were dressed that way? Okay, get my point? That's a problem when we dress like others to impress and it's not an appropriate thing because it represents something that we shouldn't be represented. I don't care how you show up here. You know? Matt's got a vest on. Dustin's got a black shirt on. I've got business casual. I don't think God really cares. However, when we dress in a way and we come into church and the dress we put on is really to try to impress, there's a problem because that's not why we're supposed to dress or be like that. Not a problem if we want to look nice. I think we should look nice. I personally am not thrilled when I walk into a church and I see somebody that looks like they just crawled off the beach and I know that during the week they dress like this. I go, but flip-flops and a ratty t-shirt, I'll be real honest. I've got a problem with that. Now, it's not, I can't righteously make a judgment. I can't say biblically, scripturally that I can, so I'm not going to address it. But in some respects, I personally feel almost like, really, it's almost like you're making a point that you're so casual and cool. Now, maybe that's not the intent. But I personally struggle with that. Can you see why that might then be a problem? When people come into the church and they're dressing in ways that are really designed to draw attention or maybe they're trying to look like the latest trend or hip and cool, you know, i got to wear my skinny jeans and all that because that's what rocksters do. So when I lead worship, i got to dress like the rocksters that I... Now, if it sounds judgmental here, maybe it is. But there's a fine line, and it's not always really easy to know where that line is, but Paul is saying when that kind of dress and behavior causes disruptions, it's inappropriate. So my purpose and plan when I come here, I just dress in a way that I don't want to cause offense. I don't wear a suit and tie here because I think it would stand out. But yet, Ron's got a suit and tie on. More than appropriate here because it's not... Right? Likewise, I'm not going to get up here wearing my ratty clothes that I put mulch down in the yard. Why? Because people are going to look at it. It's going to cause. I want to dress in a way that just is presentable, that causes no dissension, causes no disruption, doesn't draw attention to myself or take away from Christ. And the women weren't doing that. Paul doesn't mention the men. I don't think the men did their hair up like that. I think in many respects, up until the last, maybe Dustin might know better than me, but. I don't remember growing up fashion being a thing for guys. But it was for the women. Meaning most of us guys didn't really care. We have to look nice. But there's been an awful lot in the the whole feminization of men in our culture and society in the last decade or two. Now fashion is a big thing for men. Where in many respects it's done to draw attention guy liner and all kinds of weirdness and you know I don't know why that is and I'm not necessarily saying it's good or bad I'm not going to judge it that way but within the walls of the church there's no place for that we ought to be adorning ourselves in another way okay and so Paul 
as he's addressing the women here, says that they should not adorn themselves in that way with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly clothing. It's not, you want to do that to go to a ball? That's appropriate. But when you come into the gathering of the church, Paul says there should be another focus. That's the third standard. He says that they were to adorn themselves by means of good works as is proper for women professing godliness. So Paul takes the focus off of how you doll yourself up and says you ought to be focusing more on good works that is proper for professing godliness. So rather than focus on this extravagant dress, these external things, they were to focus on good works. It's more a focus on behavior. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible quality of a lowly and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of the Lord. Really, shouldn't it be that way with everything we do in the church here? Nothing should be done for show. So let's just step outside of the, this particular issue, but within the church, the way we do things should never be done for show. It should always be a demonstration of good works. A lowly and quiet spirit when we come into worship. One of the problems I have with much of what takes place in evangelical churches today is so much of it is done for show. Now, I'm not judging their motives per se. I think it's done because they think that will attract the unsaved or they think it will move people emotionally. And, but so much of it is external, you know? Not internal. And that's not appropriate. Amy and I were watching a video on the Newsboy, Newsboys concert that was just here at Grace a couple nights ago. And if you've ever watched their videos of them doing Jesus Freak, was it you and I that talked about the rotating drummer stage the other day? Did you see the, they did that at Grace the other night? Where the drummer comes up on this round stage and it spins, but then they do like this, and he is now vertical this way with it spinning as he's drumming away to the Jesus Freak song. And as cool as that is, I told Amy, I said, boy, that's just weird because now that song Jesus Freak, because they do it during the song Jesus Freak, now everybody wants that song because that's when the drummer goes like this. And it's now all about the optics of that, which now takes the emphasis off the words and everything else. So as cool as it is, it's all about that. And now that's, they can't wait for that song because that's when the drummer does that. I don't know if he does it in any other songs. I don't think it's, but every video that I found was always on Jesus Freak, all the different concerts. And that's what they did the other night. Not a judgment against them, but I'm simply saying that it's all for show and it now becomes a distraction. And so Paul says here that with these women, that they ought to adorn themselves not with the external stuff. It shouldn't be for show, but it should rather be the hidden person of the heart. So all these things go together. So what's our takeaway with that? Well, women, it's okay to dress up. It's okay to look nice. Us men like it when you do that. Um, but do it properly and modestly. We'd much rather you focus on the inward person, the hidden person of the heart, than just the external. But men, I think the same rules apply for us, especially in our culture and society today. 
But even beyond that, I think we as men ought to encourage our wives and daughters to dress and behave in ways that are modest and proper, that garner respect and dignity. You know, as we were growing up, Kimberly would often ask why we would not let her um, wear a bikini to the beach or to the pool. Every family's got different rules, but we wouldn't let her do that. And one of the reasons we didn't let her do that was we said, well, we wanted to teach her that her body was something that her husband's eyes should see and not others. And I'm, and I'm not making a judgment on anybody else. We just wanted to raise our daughters that way, that they learn to cover themselves up. And not everybody's going to agree with that decision, but that's the decision we had as a family. We used it as a teaching tool to her. Um, and again, that's kind of walking that line because not everybody's going to agree with me on that. But um, we wanted to teach her what it meant to be modest in behavior and in dress. And so that's what we did. That's what we chose to do because it was all a teaching time. So the third and final disruption that Paul addressed, and we're barely going to touch on this because I'm going to spend time next week really diving into this last one, but I'm just going to touch on it. The third disruption that Paul had to address was the behavior of some of the women in the church when it came to teaching during their gathering time. Look at verses 11 through 15. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now, you've got to come back next week because I'm sure you want me to explain that to you. I'm just going to touch on it. I decided to break that out into a separate week because we really need to work through that to properly understand it. So I don't want to leave you hanging and just tack it on the end of the message today. So we'll deal with that next week, what all those pieces mean. But Paul's primary point here is that there was disruption in the church because the women were usurping some of the authority that God had specifically designed for men. And it was causing a disruption within the church. And it had specifically to do with teaching and having authority over men. And that was not appropriate. And so Paul had to address that. So we'll spend more time next week looking at that and kind of breaking that up in terms of what each one of these pieces mean. Can women teach? Can women not teach? And what does it mean to have authority over a man? And what does it mean for them to be saved through childbearing? All that kind of stuff. Um, But the problem was that the women were not behaving appropriately in that regard within the church. They had violated some of God's rules for how the church was to be managed and who was to have authority over who within the church. So Paul had these three issues that he addressed. One of them was the men and their arguing, their wrath, their dissension, their disputes. Second was the way the women were behaving with their dress and their behavior. And then third and finally, how some of the women were behaving. And I would even say some of the men who allowed authority to be usurped within the church. All of those things were causing issues. So what can we do ultimately with that? One more overarching takeaway that I'll share with this. Paul's main concern in all three of these situations was the disruption happening in the Ephesians church. They were arguing, disputing, extravagant dress and all that stuff and misbehavior during the teaching time and disruptions being caused by that. The local church is supposed to be a place of unity. It's supposed to be a place where we come together, we are encouraged, we're unified, we're built up, we're strengthened, and then we're sent out. 
if there's disruptions, if there's fighting, if there's all kinds of other stuff going on, all that does is hamper God's plan for his redemptive purposes. Plain and simple. And the church has to be very careful with that. Our purpose as a church, again, is to unify, to build up. You ought to be able to come into the church and be encouraged not to have the hairs on the back of your neck stand up because you've got an issue with somebody that's sitting three rows over. Or walk in and be distracted because of somebody's behavior or because of the way they're dressed or things that they do. The church is supposed to be, and I hate to use this phrase, the safe place for us to be. Now, it doesn't mean we won't be challenged, confronted, maybe a little uncomfortable in the right way. But we need to protect this time, and so that's exactly what Paul does here by providing some instructions. And so we would take it to heart to make sure that um, these things apply to us as well, so that when we come into our gatherings together here, that we might be unified. doesn't mean we always agree, but that we're unified because of proper behavior, proper dress, making sure that we're praying for one another. Amen?